please, please, please help me. My child has anxiety and I've got no idea what to do. This is something I hear a lot from parents who feel powerless in how to help children when they are struggling with anxiety and panic attacks. It's something that comes up a lot and members of my own WhatsApp community do ask me for advice about how to help their own children. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to reach out to a top expert in the field of childhood anxiety to talk through the concerns of worried parents. So I reached out to Dr. Ellie Lebowitz, who is the author of Breaking Free of Childhood Anxiety and OCD. He is also a child and adolescent psychologist, and he is the director of the Programme for Anxiety Disorders at the Yale Child Study Centre. I have to say, this interview is absolute gold for any parent who wants to know how to work with their child when they're struggling with anxiety. So please listen to the very end. And if you've not yet subscribed to the Mindset Change podcast, please do, because you really, really do not want to miss out on the episodes coming your way. And welcome, Dr. Ellie Leibowitz. Welcome to the Mindset Change podcast. It's really, I'm really glad to have you here, as my community have been asking for someone with your expert, expertise to come and talk about anxiety and children. Uh, so if you could introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your work, then we can have a great conversation from there. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Um, talk about myself. I'm a psychologist. I'm a professor at the Yale Child Study Center, where I um, co-lead the Anxiety and Mood Disorders Program. And my main focus is on anxiety and related problems in children, but I'm particularly interested in the family dynamics that surround uh, child anxiety, the impact on parents and on working with parents in treating those problems. Hmm. Amazing. So when you're just, I was listening to my group and I wanted them to ask me some questions that I could to relate to you, but there was a lot of feeling around parents, being a parent with a child who's, you know, who's anxious, is in a lot of guilt, as in, what am I doing mm. wrong? I feel powerless. I don't know what to do. Um, are they picking up on my anxiety? So mm. what would you, what would, you know, what is your approach when it comes to, because uh, I've been looking at your work and I, I love the way that you, you, you talk about it. What would you say to a parent who's struggling with those feelings of guilt? And powerlessness? Oh, I would say give yourself a break. You know, um, our field, like mental health, we, we brought this on ourselves, this whole, uh, you know, guilt okay. issue. We really did. As a field, we have done so much damage over the years. We've taught people that parents really are to blame for their children's problems. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a really long history of a lot of really influential theories over the years, blaming parents for everything. You know, you go back and you have parents being blamed for schizophrenia in their children, um, being blamed for autism in their children, eating disorders in their children, and of course, anxiety in their children. You know what? Empirical evidence 
fails to back up those theories time and again. There really is not evidence to suggest that parents are the cause of those problems, including anxiety problems. How you respond as a parent when your child is anxious can make a difference. But that is really different from saying that you caused the anxiety in the first place. In fact, I'll go one step further. I'll say, putting aside, you know, putting aside really horrible parenting, right? Abuse and neglect, yeah. things like that, which of course, th- those really can be damaging to children's uh, well-being. But you know what? It's not those parents who are struggling with the guilt um, and beating themselves up for not being a good enough parent. Uh, so putting aside those things, the truth of the matter is that who you are as a parent is really unlikely to have a big impact on whether or not your child has an anxiety disorder. Um, maybe you are a very protective parent, parent mm-hmm. for example, a really controlling parent. If your child wasn't born with a predisposition to anxiety, you are not likely to make to give them an anxiety disorder or make them an anxious child. You are likely to irritate them <laughs> because mm-hmm. when you're really uh, very protective and your child isn't particularly anxious, well, you know, it could be a little bit annoying, but you're not going to give them an anxiety disorder. So I think as a parent, what you should say to yourself is, I have the ability to be part of the solution here. I have the ability to help my child overcome this problem by thinking about how I'm handling it and how I'm responding to it. But this is not my fault. And in my experience, when you are able to put aside the question of blame, it's a really positive experience to be able to help your child overcome a challenge that they have. And let's face it, in no other field, in no other area of life, do we assume that parents would only help their kids with problems that they caused, right? Like we don't apply Mm -hmm. that idea to anything else. If your kid comes home from school with a broken leg, I don't know many parents who are going to say, I didn't break it. So that sounds like a you problem. (laughs) It's not my fault. I didn't do it. No, of course not. We say, well, you know, it's my kid. I care about them and I want to help them. And so I'm going to do what I have to do. And it's my job and responsibility. But it's separate from the question of who caused it. And it's only in mental health that we seem to make this link between, well, if I didn't, you know, if, if, if if I can help with it, then I must have caused it in the first place. So I, you know... I really would say to parents, like, try to put that aside. I don't think you gave your kid an anxiety disorder and maybe cut yourself a little bit of slack for trying your best. And uh, even just thinking about it means to me, you're a caring parent that wants to help your kid to you know, live the best life they can. Uh, do you know, I think a lot of people listening to this are going to hopefully have, you know, that sigh of relief that can just say, Let's move on from over-focusing on the past and what have I done wrong to what can I do about it? And I think that's, I think the power of choice, that that we have choices, that there's even maybe a structure to what can I do next can take people away from over-focusing on the past. What would you say were the next steps? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what would you say would, would, would be the next steps for someone if they're, 
the child has anxiety. Um, I th- that's the other thing that, you know, that powerlessness that comes up, they, parents just don't know what to do. If, you know, I remember when I had my first panic attack when I was a child, my mother handed me my in- inhaler because she thought it was an asthma attack. And mm. um, as well meaning as that was, it wasn't going to help in that moment. Um, so what, what can a parent do? Um, what steps can they take with, with their young one if they've got anxiety? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, first of all, it is important to recognize that every kid is going to be anxious sometimes. Mm. And, you know, we don't need to pathologize all anxiety. I would say, you know, if your kid comes into the, your bedroom at night one day and says, I think there's a monster under my bed, I don't recommend giving them Prozac uh, right away or, you know, running to the hospital or the doctor because everybody is going to be anxious some of the time, right? Like whether you have uh, more or less, everybody's going to be anxious sometimes. That being said, uh, some children are going to struggle more with anxiety, where it is going to become a more pervasive problem in their life, right? Like something that is really um, just disrupting life, you know, whether that's how you feel, can you just feel good about like your day? Can you sleep at night? Can you, you know, enjoy a meal? Can you hang out with friends? Can you go to school? Can you pay attention in school? Right? Like sometimes it's going to start interfering in a more significant way. And, and that's where we're going to start thinking more about like, okay, what steps might we want to, um, might we want to take? But even there, I think uh, I would say like, don't panic. Anxiety mm-hmm. problems are, really common, you know, even the more serious anxiety problems, not the sometimes anxiety that everybody's going to have, even yeah. the, like what, what, what we would think of as like an anxiety disorder. Those are really, really, really common problems. And they're not just common, they're also very highly addressable. They're highly treatable. I think an important thing for parents to know is that the world is full of people who used to have an anxiety disorder. Mm. Meaning you can actually overcome these problems. It's not like, okay, if I have an anxiety disorder today, that's it, right? Like this is my life forever. No, these are actually, I would say, the most treatable problems in mental health. There are so many other problems where we wish we had solutions that are mm. like half as effective as we have for um, for anxiety. So my first message to a parent would be like, don't panic. Um, it's good that you're concerned about it. It's good that you're thinking about what, like how to help. But I don't think approaching it from like a crisis, frantic, or doom kind of mode is going mm. to be necessary um, or, or particularly helpful for that matter. Now, with that being said, I think one of the most important things to realize as the parent of a child with anxiety is that most of the impairment, most of the actual like problems that come from anxiety disorders come from a child's determination not to be anxious, from that feeling that I really can't handle being anxious and therefore I have to avoid it. Therefore I have to shape my life around the principle of like, how am I going to avoid whatever might make me 
anxious. Now, that's a really natural way to respond to anxiety, which is why it is so, so common. Right? Like mm -hmm. our whole anxiety system is literally hardwired to drive avoidant behavior, right? Like that's kind of what it's for. Um, you know, think of it like a, like a, like a pain, right? We feel pain so mm -hmm. that we will like take note of things that are damaging to us and not do them again and, you know, stay away from them, etc. If pain was really pleasant, you know, we'd all be a lot more injured <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of the time. And anxiety is similar in that it'll keep us away from dangers, but that means that you fall into that trap of feeling like, oh, I need to make sure I'm not anxious. And what it also means, though, is that the most important lesson for a child who has anxiety to learn is actually, I can be anxious and it'll pass okay. and it's okay. And yeah, it's yeah. not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, teaching your child that it's okay to be anxious some of the time and that that's like, they can handle that, that's all right, is I think the biggest gift you can give an anxious child. I would say, you know, as a parent, that's like your North Star is showing your child that they can actually handle it. And so what we really recommend is what we would call a supportive stance toward anxiety. What's a supportive stance in a parent? It's when you're able to show your child that, first of all, you do get it, that they're mm -hmm. anxious. You're not denying it. You're not mad at them because of it. You're not um, you know, judging them for it. But at the same time, you also believe that they can cope with that, that they can handle it. When you're able to give your child those two messages, that's when you are responding in a supportive way. And it can be really simple, right? It can be as simple as saying to a kid, I get it. I see this is really hard for you. And I think you can handle it, right? Like, so it doesn't have to be, uh, um, you know, a really complicated message. In fact, I'd say probably better not to be a super complicated message. Yeah. But having those two ingredients of the acceptance, but also that confidence, I think that is the best message. In, in terms of how you as a parent are responding to your child's anxiety. No, I absolutely love that. It, I think it's so important to change your relationship with anxiety and not demonize it. And I think yeah. if you think about, I, I'm wondering if, I don't know what your theory on, it, on this is that, you know, for, you know, for most of our history, that we have had anxiety as a normalized thing because it was how we survived. Mm. And suddenly we don't want it mm. now because we're told, well, we shouldn't have it. So therefore we think there's something wrong with us if, we ha if, we, if we're anxious. And there can be other indicators as to why it's there, but the more we normalize anxiety, the, and that we change our relationship with it, we, that we're not, you know, what we resist persists. So it begins to die down anyway. We don't see it as such a threat. I think you're touching on a really deep point that even actually probably even goes beyond anxiety only. And that is the idea that I, I think we have to a certain extent bought into the idea that we are somehow, you know, supposed to be in like in control of everything that our mind and brain is doing all the time as though 
your mind is like a symphony and you're the conductor and you decide when, you know, that instrument plays and when it doesn't play. Uh, when in fact, that is not at all what the human mind is like, right? It is yeah. not like that at all. It does what it does. And when you really buy into the idea that you should be in control of it, well, then everything that happens that you can't control just becomes so much more threatening and so much more distressing to you, right? You see this, I think maybe the absolute uh, kind of epitomizing example of that is like something like obsessive compulsive disorder where you are by definition having thoughts that you don't wanna have, right? That are intrusive, that are coming unwanted, unbidden into your mind and you can't stop them. And the harder you get into fighting against them and thinking, no, I definitely should never have that thought. Why would I think that? The more you're gonna end up wrapped up in that um, struggle. And you know, ironically, the more you're gonna probably end up having that thought as well. But it really does apply, like you're saying, to anxiety in general, because if you treat every like experience of anxiety as some kind of uh, either a crisis or a failure, or just like something that really shouldn't be happening, then you're gonna get sucked into that mode of A, being really uh, kind of embattled with yourself and with your own mind, but you'll also get sucked into the avoidance mode of you know like do, doing everything you can to make sure it doesn't happen. So I think that supportive message from a parent is a really positive way to reflect to a child like, you know what? Yeah, this does happen sometimes. And it is hard, right? Like you don't want to trivialize that. It, you know, when I, when I say like be accepting of it, it's not just like, oh yeah, sure. Everybody's anxious sometimes. No, this is a really hard moment for this kid, right? Mm. Like they're actually in distress right now and showing them that you get that is really important, but then pairing it with that other message of confidence that like, yeah, it's okay though, right? Like it's really, it's really hard, but it's also, but it's also okay. Um, so I think that is like one really important, just, you know, principle to, to kind of navigate a lot of the, um, a lot of the situations. Then another thing that we focus on a lot is what we call accommodation of, um, okay. of anxiety. So what does, what, does that, what does accommodation look like for anyone listening? What can they do? Uh, because it's, I think people want to rush to those quick fixes, those magic bullets, because they think, you know, um, what has my child got to be anxious about? Is it school? Is it because I'm putting too much pressure on them? Which, I mean, they, they may be factors, but it's this thing of, you know, my child shouldn't be anxious. Um, so it's, then over-focusing on the, the possible mental health side of things and, and the roots. Uh, yeah, but what does accommodation look like? Well, you could think of, a, of accommodation as the parent essentially doing the same thing the child is doing, which is like, let's see how we can arrange things so that you won't be anxious, which has ultimately a negative effect because it's strengthening that idea that, well, you really can't tolerate being anxious. And so I start bending over backward as a parent to do everything I can to make sure you don't need a bit, right? So um, think of it as just, you know, all of the changes that a parent might make and 
how they behave relative to how they otherwise might typically be behaving, those changes that are aimed at trying to help this child not to be anxious. For example, maybe your child is um, really worried a lot of the time and you just spend a lot of time reassuring them, you know, just telling them again and again and again, like, it's okay, that won't happen, or this is not a problem, or you're going to be all right, or, you know, things like that. Or maybe your child um, has social anxiety, right? Like they're really uncomfortable with other people, social situations, and you start figuring out all the different ways that you can help them not experience that anxiety. And so you start having fewer people over to your house and you start answering questions for them when somebody's talking to them, when you're out somewhere and, you know, you kind of arrange life in a way that will make sure, okay, this kid doesn't have to cope with that anxiety because we know that like triggers them or it's really hard for them. And so we're not going to, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, maybe your child has separation anxiety, which is incredibly common, especially in younger kids, uh, although not only, and, you know, really scared about being away from the parent, right? What if they never come back? What if they have an accident? What if I get kidnapped? You know, all these different scary mm. thoughts that could happen. And uh, sometimes it's even like being in another room, right? It doesn't even have to be, I don't want my parents to go away for a weekend. It can be like, I don't want them to go in the other room for 10 minutes. And, you know, parent might be accommodating that by just staying with them all the time, right? Like not going out, not uh, leaving the door open whenever they go somewhere so that the kid can see them. These are all just like examples of accommodation. And if you are a parent of a child with anxiety and you think, oh yeah, that's me, I am accommodating, I would say, well, welcome to the club because (laughs) research all over the world shows that Almost 100% of parents, if you have a kid with some anxiety, you're probably making some accommodations of that um, anxiety. So if you feel guilty about that, don't feel guilty about that either. That is the normal, natural response in a parent of seeing a kid who has anxiety. Of course, you're going to try to help them to not be anxious. Like, why wouldn't you? And it's not just that, you know, parents naturally want their child to not be anxious. There's two other factors that drive a lot of accommodation. One is the kid asks for it. The kids try to get you to accommodate. It It is like deeply built into our brains as children that when I'm anxious, what do I do? I look to my parent to help make me less anxious, right? That is really at a very deep level, hardwired into uh, how the human brain works, especially in childhood. It really goes, I mean, all the way down to our like basic mammalian biology. You know, mammals are born pretty helpless. And when they're scared, when they're, you know, threatened and they're young and they can't defend themselves, they rely on caregivers to do it for them. And so it's really kind of like hardwired into us that, okay, if I'm anxious and I'm a kid, I guess I'm going to look to my parents. So that's another factor that drives it is the kid is actually going to ask you to accommodate. In fact, often insist (laughs) that you accommodate, not just like ask you nicely. They might really, you know, push hard for that, um, for that accommodation. And really a third factor that drives it a lot is just, you know, we're all busy. 
we have places to be, we have things to do, uh, we have to get through the day. Maybe you're the parent of an anxious child, but you might also be somebody who has a job. You might also be the parent of two other children. You might like, you have a busy life. And when your child is anxious and in that stuck moment, you kind of need to do what you have to do in order to like get through that and keep the day moving forward, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, when your kid is uh, scared to go to sleep alone at night, nobody really feels like they have like three hours to talk about this. You, know, you have to get True. the kid to sleep. And so if that means I'm going to go lie next to you in your bed, well, okay, let's just do it because we have to get through the day. And so all of these factors together contribute to a tremendous amount of accommodation from parents. But what research also shows, in addition to it being really common, is that it actually ends up ultimately not being very helpful. You know, it helps in that short term, like immediate moment, you got your kid to sleep or, you know, you got through that awkward interaction when somebody tried to ask them a question and they didn't want to answer. So you stepped in, you answered for them, you got through the moment, but on a slightly longer term, more accommodation tends to actually lead to even more anxiety. And it goes back to what we were saying like a few minutes ago. As you're accommodating more, you're just strengthening that message that I know you can't handle the anxiety. It's like the opposite of the confidence message. And so another useful thing for parents to think about is what are the ways that I might be accommodating and maybe actually trying to reduce some of that accommodation, to pull it back, to take some opportunities to actually not do that and let your child get through that difficult moment. But at the end of that difficult moment, it'll be hard, but then you'll have a kid who actually got through it and will have learned, you know what? I really did survive it, even without my parent kind of jumping in to rescue me from it. Because, you know, I, I think having someone to always rescue you, you know, that's, that's great, but always needing to be rescued by somebody else. That's a really vulnerable way to live, right? It's, it leaves you feeling Mm. so vulnerable. And so learning that you can actually handle things without that builds a lot of confidence and ends up leading to less anxiety. That reminds me so much. I wanted to ask you about that. There's so much coming up from there, but it reminds me of the drama triangle by uh, Stephen Cartman, uh, where people rush in to rescue and um, the prize is always to be the victim. The, the prize is um, that you're, you're in that, oh, what's going to happen next to me, uh, you know, state of mind, where's the next danger going to come from? And I, you know, I just saw that triangle flash up uh, from rescuer mm. to victim to persecutor. Uh, you're not rescuing me enough. Um, and it also, you know, there's a whole dynamic there that I think is really interesting. But how does... How does a parent who's maybe struggling to regulate their nervous system, but they're anxious and one way for them to soothe their own anxiety, I hear this quite a lot, is to rescue. You know, it's like, you know, it's mm-hmm. that, oh, I feel more relaxed now that I've lived there with little Johnny for three hours. Um, what would you, how do you, how does someone work through that? What could they do? And how do you know? So the second part to a question, how do you know when to accommodate when it's, you know, a healthy thing and when maybe it's not such a healthy thing? 
Yeah. So to the first part of your uh, of your question, right, the parent, you know, might be might be really stressful for them, too. Right. Mm. Like doing that accommodation soothes your child, but it also kind of soothes you because like you're able to stop this really distressing moment. And that's really normal. Right. Like that's that's a very, very reasonable way to, to feel. I would say a few things, though. Um, one is, you know, just connect with the meaning of what you're doing, like coping with that distress in yourself that's like there's a sacrifice there but it's a really valuable one that you're making for your child like i guess i would say wouldn't it be great if your child you know think about them in the future could actually be somebody that feels less overwhelmed maybe even less overwhelmed than you feel as as a parent right like maybe you can set them on a course that'll be even better than the one that you might be experiencing with so much anxiety or feeling so dysregulated or so overwhelmed, you know, just connecting with the, like the real meaning of what you're doing. I said before, it's like a gift that you're giving your, your child. I think sometimes that can make, um, make it just a little bit easier. Now, the other thing though, is I don't recommend trying to stop all your accommodations at once overnight. Right? Like, I, I don't think a lot of parents would be able to live up to that. I don't even know if it would really be that good for a child. I mean, if you have a parent who's doing a lot of different accommodations, one day they just stop all of them. I, I don't know. It sounds pretty overwhelming to, to me, even for the yeah, child. Yeah. So accommodation sure cold turkey. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just go cold turkey, zero accommodation. No, I think what you can do is just pick like one little thing that you're going to you know, that you're going to work on. And then, you know, within that one thing, even that you, you can sometimes just reduce it partially. You don't even have to necessarily stop that one thing cold turkey. Like maybe you go just a little bit less. You make like a, make a clear plan around it. What am I going to do differently this week? And I also recommend letting your child know in advance before you actually make the change. Like tell them what you're doing. Tell them why, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm doing this because I think this is going to help you more. I think this is going to help you to get less uh, less anxious. Mm. That way they'll know that it's not because you're mad at them. It's not because you're fed up with all of their anxiety shenanigans and like you've had it up to here and blah, blah, blah. Which, you know, it is exasperating. Having a child with a lot of anxiety yeah. can be exasperating. And so let them know that it's not about that. It's that you're trying to help them in this way. And then, you know, you do that really specific one thing and try to be just as consistent as you can with, with that. I think it makes it, uh, it makes it easier. And for yourself also, like, just tell yourself same thing you're saying to the child, right? Like it is going to be hard and also you can handle it. It is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You're not going to cause harm. You're not going to cause damage. It's just going to be a difficult moment, but living through difficult moments actually can be a positive thing it, it's mm. it's it's hard but it can actually be a, it can leave us stronger than we were um than we were before and i think the second part of your question was around that but like should, like which, which accommodation should we be reducing or how do you know yeah. what might be helpful or unhelpful um you know i would usually suggest a, a, a simple rule of thumb my rule of thumb would be, is this accommodation that I'm making, is it helping my child to go from a lower level of functioning 
to a higher one? Or is it moving in the opposite direction, mm -hmm. right? Am I going backward on that kind of coping functional um, axis? I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. You know, a lot of children struggle with, with going to school, right? You know, school phobia or anxiety. So like almost any anxiety can make it hard to be in school, right? If you have separation anxiety, yeah. well, it's a separation. If you have social anxiety, well, it's a social jungle, right? If it, yeah. Almost any kind of anxiety can make going to school harder. And so anxious children will often struggle with just attendance. So if you have a child who's been out of school, for example, for like two weeks because they've been so anxious, every morning it's been like, you know, a struggle and ultimately they didn't go and they haven't gone. And now you've talked to them and they're, they say like, okay, I am going to go, but I want you to come in with me and walk me to the class and maybe hang around for a while. I would say to the parent, you should definitely do that. <laughs> I would totally, totally do that because you're moving up on the function axis, right? Like you're going from no attendance to attendance with accommodation. That's a step forward. Okay. But on the other hand, on the other hand, Maybe you have a child who is going to school, right? Like they are attending, but it's hard for them. They have anxiety and it's hard for them. And one day they say to you, oh, it's so hard for me going in. Like, would you come in with me? Would you stay while I'm in the class? Would you hang around for a while? I think I might say to that parent, that may be a less helpful accommodation because it feels mm -hmm. like you're actually going backward from where they are. You're actually going lower on the kind of functional um, dimension. And so maybe you maybe that child would be better served by mm. thinking about what can you do to help yourself to feel a little bit better in the school? What are some resources that you can uh, use or some tools that you can engage or somebody in the school that can help you rather than introducing that accommodation because you're moving in the opposite direction. So that's, that's usually my rule of thumb for, for thinking about it. I really like that. I really like as well communicating with your child as to why you're, you're you know, you might not be as accommodating as you were before to not let, you know, to let them know that you're not mad at them. There's no, you know, mm -hmm. blame or anything like that. It's to really help them. I think that's quite an empowering message, a really empowering message. I really like that. I've got some questions yeah. for you. <laughs> sorry, sorry, you want to say something? <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I think it, it is important to show them that you're not angry at them, but I also do want to say to parents, uh, don't be too surprised if your child gets a little bit angry at you, <laughs> oh, yeah. because, you know, when when you don't accommodate, not every child is going to give you a hug and say, thank you for understanding mm -hmm. child anxiety so deeply. Right. Like yeah, some yeah. children are going to get a little bit mad when you start by not when you start reducing that um, that accommodation. And I would say don't get angry at that either. Right. Like even if they get mad at you, maybe they're getting loud or they're getting aggressive or something like that. Don't get mad at that either, because that's their anxiety. Right. Like they're scared. You're doing something that for them in this moment feels really hard. And so don't be surprised by it. And like, you know, don't retaliate um, against it. And then I think you'll be able to get through that moment a lot, you know, a lot, a lot better. So it's just good to be prepared for that. Yeah, I think I, I think that's, uh, again, more great advice is in regards to, I think parents are going to have huge guilt trips again about, um, you know, accommodating and dynamics about it. And also what to do with resistance 
um, because I, th I think, I don't know, a lot of parents are just used to just, maybe it's just easier. As you said, they've got busy lives, got other things going on to just give in for that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and about also being aware of where that could lead, you know, more longer term. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so some exactly. yeah, So I've got some questions for you some from, the, from my community. Um, Okay. And one of the one of the questions that came up was, um, how do I help um, if my child has nausea, which is an anxiety symptom? Um, mm -hmm. When do I go to the doctors about the nausea, or how do or how do I just see it as part of anxiety? What's it's almost like these physical symptoms that can manifest itself, and the doctor is saying, "Oh no, no, there's nothing wrong." but the child keeps experiencing and maybe as part of anxiety, any advice for a member of my community who asked that question? What do they do? If they, they kind of feel stuck in yeah. a rock in a hard yeah, place. I, that's really hard because I mean, you know, nausea, it's, 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 it's a, obviously a really physical sensation, mm -hmm. right? It's uh, a, a lot of anxiety manifests in the body, right? Like we, yeah. we our, our body like responds to anxiety. We're going to feel it in the body, but nausea, it just, I mean, you just feel literally sick, right? And so it's a really hard thing to kind of, um, you know, ignore. And um, I guess I would say it is important for, to, to start out by just making, you know, doing some evaluation with a physician, just to make sure that we really do think this is anxiety. Uh, it, it, very much can be, but of course you do want to rule out any other things that might be going on because it's possible to have more than one problem in life, right? Like you can be a really anxious person and also have an allergy or have yeah. a lactose intolerance or, you know, whatever, right? Like, so, so it is important to not assume because we know this kid is anxious to not assume that everything physical mm. that manifests is anxiety. Um, you know, it's, it, I, I, I knew uh, uh, somebody who had depression and was, you know, experiencing a lot of like symptoms of depression, feeling down, feeling low energy, feeling tired, et cetera, et cetera. And for a long time, just wrote that off as part of the depression, eventually had blood tests, found out there was like a thyroid um, um, issue yeah. going on because it's possible to have more than one problem in in life so mm -hmm. yeah it's important to start out by doing some basic um, assessment however having done that having done that and mm -hmm. if you know you've done a workup and the physician is saying like no this kid is like healthy and we really think it's anxiety and especially if you see it also linked to some of the triggers of anxiety, right? Like, you know, if the kid is worried about school and they tend to be a lot more nauseous on a school day than they yeah. are on a weekend day, for example, that, you know, it gives you a little bit of one more piece of supporting evidence that we really do think it's anxiety. And so at that point, I think it is important to um, take a break from some of the doctor appointments and, and accept that the child is just, you know, feeling really anxious but not to treat that as less of a problem because when you're nauseous, you're nauseous, right? Like mm. if it's coming from anxiety or it's coming from food poisoning, your nausea is still nausea, right? Like you still mm. feel sick and horrible. And so, you know, sometimes when we think it's psychological in root, we tend to downplay the importance of it, right? It's like, oh, that's just in your head. Well, sure. 
but also I still feel really nauseous. And so that message of like the acceptance that I was talking about before, it becomes at least as important. So, like I get it. That's a horrible, horrible feeling. But also it is okay, right? Like it is, I'm not okay in the sense that it's fine, but okay in the sense that it's not dangerous, right? Yeah. It's not uh, It's not a danger to you. It mm. will ultimately pass. And it's a question of like, you know, going back to that supportive message and communicating it. I think I would say to a parent, if uh, six months have passed, your child is equally nauseous all the time, you know, you do another round of like checking in with the, with, with the yeah. doctor again. But in the but for the six months in between, maybe take a break from the doctors. Yeah, I think I, I love that. I, I think I love the, again, nausea is okay, even though it's not great to experience. It's it's okay. And I think they were saying they, they look at their daughter and they see how gray they look. And then they, they, there's that panic of, well, do I send them to school or not? Do I not send them to school? It's the, you know, do I accommodate or not accommodate? I guess. And so what would, what, what would you advise there is in regards to if your child is looking very gray from anxiety induced nausea, maybe do you keep them off of school? Is that accommodating? I, I would not keep them off of school. Yeah. I would not. I would, I would encourage sending them to sending them to school because um, especially if we think that the nausea is anxiety related, you know, t- keeping them home is not likely to make the problem go away. And after they've been home for a few days, actually going back to school can be even harder than Mm -hmm. it was. And then you have even more nausea. nausea. And now you've also kind of taught them that you can't go when you feel nauseous. And so you get into this cycle that can really lead to some serious attendance issues, um, which, as I already noted, are really common in, in anxiety. So I think I would much rather go with a message of like, yeah, it absolutely sucks to go through a day feeling nauseous. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that maybe it's not equally constant nausea all through the day. And mm. I think that's maybe also worth like exploring if you're the parent in this case, right? Yeah, like yeah. maybe uh, is it the, you know, maybe the second hour is actually much less nausea than the first hour, for example. And so you can kind of limit what is this ordeal that I have to go through. Mm. But yeah, it is a bit of an ordeal. I think if you do that, though, um, and you do send them to school, they're going to be a lot better off. And I think that panic feeling that the parent is is feeling when they see their child in distress, ultimately, that's going you know, to that, that can make it even harder for for the child. When you when you are a child and you are feeling really anxious, you know, it's better to look at a parent who is concerned and caring, but actually is calm and knows that things are fine as opposed to a parent who is really panicking about it. You know, by way of analogy, yeah. if you're on an airplane <laughs> and it's bumping around because of turbulence, nobody wants to look at the flight attendant and see them looking freaked out. <laughs> <Don't you? laughs> right? like, <laughs> that is not a reassuring uh, thing to see. You want to see a flight attendant who looks fine, right? Like they're handing out drinks and they look calm. And so you're, you know, you're the parent, you're the flight attendant in this in this situation, and your child is looking at you, and so they do want to see that you care, but I don't think they want to see that you're panicking. I think that is brilliant advice. I love the, it is, again, there's so much in the way of communicating how normal, even nausea or anything, you know, any strong anxiety symptom is, and not to go into avoidance mode. I think that's such an important message. Um, 
And this also kind of links to the next question. Another uh, member of the community was talking about uh, their son uh, since COVID has become a little obsessed with washing their hands um, to mm. the point where it, you know, the psoriasis, eczema type thing. On what would you advise? They, they said they're pretty stuck because there's this health obsession that's become to to manifest itself, and this parent wasn't sure what to do. Yeah, that's a really good question. I and mean, COVID has uh, had a really awful impact on mm. children's um, mental health, and we see so many problems in 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 children, like very high anxiety levels, also high, other problems, so high depression levels. And a lot of children are, st are still today um, struggling. Right. Um, I think to the specific question, uh, I would recommend do, like meeting with somebody to do a little bit of evaluation and find out whether is this like a really isolated kind of issue? It's really just the hand washing because of like mm -hmm. COVID and like that's okay. it or potentially or possibly is it part of a somewhat broader um, a somewhat broader kind of compulsivity or obsessions that might be impacting the child because maybe that's the one that you're seeing most clearly or most vividly but it's not rare for a child who has one kind of compulsive behavior to also have more and it's worth finding it out uh, so that that can kind of inform your next um, your next step so I would probably meet with somebody and just like try to do a little bit of assessment. Um, but um, I think I might encourage, you know, I think, first of all, it is important to give some like actual information, which they probably are, this parent has probably already done in terms of yeah. like, what is necessary, what is not necessary. And, you know, let's face it, like, we all got driven a little bit batty during COVID with like, uh, yeah. you know, should you wash your groceries when you bring them home? Should you like, oh, yes. I remember that. like this induced OCD for, yeah. for everybody. Uh, and so it's not surprising if like kids might be a little bit confused actually about like what is safe, right? Like where is the line of, of what is safe? So giving some actual like concrete information, you know, it is important to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. Um, it is not important to wash your hands 30 times a day, like just giving some real um, concrete information. And if the child is, um, is willing to do it, then, you know, maybe, maybe uh, trying to come up with like a little bit of a, of a plan for um, limiting it to a certain amount or number of times a day or even to practice like being okay with getting your hands dirty, right? Like yeah. we have an immune system, right? We're not devoid of, uh, of immunity. And so it's actually okay to sometimes get your hands a little bit dirty. Our, our species did not evolve in a sea of primordial Purell, mm, <laughs> right? Like we, <laughs> we, we, we evolved exposed to a lot of germs and that's normal it's okay and so maybe we can even have fun with it like let's practice mm -hmm. getting our hands a little bit dirty what are some things that we could touch that we might have been avoiding or, or things like that but it's important to do that if your child is willing to kind of go along with it not i, I wouldn't try to coerce a child into doing that uh, that that kind mm -hmm. of thing i think if they continue to really struggle with it and the hands are really red and raw and getting you know chopped mm -hmm. and things like that I, I would probably recommend you know seeing a, a therapist who might be able to work with them on it more professionally yeah I, 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 again uh, i think that's really really helpful 
um, and going back to COVID having an impact on, you know, um, mm. mental health, especially, uh, not only in children, but in adults. Uh, you know, so many people came to talk to me about just their experiences um, from the COVID years. But another question that someone asked me about was, are our lifestyles, you know, our 21st lifestyles uh, with technology and screens and diets and the way that sometimes children aren't aren't mixing the way that they used to? Um, you know, I don't know how about you. When we grew up, it was we never were at home, really. We just stayed out all day with friends. That was it. And then came mm-hmm. back home. Um, and it seems very different for children nowadays. Uh, and that gets brought up quite a lot. Are our lifestyles contributing towards children um, struggling with anxiety or has this always been the case? What What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I would say uh, anxiety has always been pretty common. Yeah. <laughs> it's never yeah. been rare to have uh, anxiety and even anxiety disorders. It's not it's not a completely new thing. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes it seems like the numbers are growing at such a high rate, but part of that is also our increased awareness of the yeah. uh, of the problem, right? Like you're talking about, like, for example, when we were kids, but then too, a lot of kids had anxiety disorders and, you know, a lot of them got overlooked because people didn't think about it, didn't really pick up on it in the same way. Now, that being said, is it possible that some of the features of, you know, increasingly technologized online modern life may contribute to more anxiety. I think it is possible. I'm not going to state it as an absolute fact because it's really hard to empirically demonstrate these things, but I I think it is possible uh, in many different ways. It's, you know, part of it is what you touched on, like the, you know, less maybe just actual interactions with like physical human beings. There's other aspects too. you know, social media is a massive part of kids' lives. And let's face it, you know, social media platforms have one goal, and that is to retain people's attention. Mm. And true. unfortunately, the thing that grabs our attention the best is not always the thing that makes us feel the best, right? Like we we know that things that cause you to feel more anxious tend to capture your attention in a very powerful way. And so you don't have to be an evil uh, social media company to end up, you know, kind of uh, being influenced by that. Because if your algorithm is tuned to like show people what's going to keep them looking, well, part of that is what makes them more angry or what makes them more anxious. And so I think it is, um, that's another, uh, that's another factor. Anyway, I guess I would say, I think it is plausible and possible that aspects of modern life are contributing to elevated anxiety, but also those aspects are here, right? Like yeah. they are, uh, the world that we are living in. So you and I figuring out whether or not it is contributing to anxiety is not going to change the fact that that's still the world that these kids are growing up in. And our role becomes, you know, to increase in them, like the resilience to be able, being able to cope with that, um, with that anxiety, because we're not able to completely change um, the actual world that, let's face it, you know, technology is not going away. No, I, I, you know, a thought struck me as you were, when you were saying that just now is, you know, think about each decade as, you know, for our history, there's always been something 
for us to be, you know, it's changed our lives and, and, and would class as adding pressure to our nervous system. Um, but I think it comes back again to, but anxiety has always been there. It's always just different factors now that point to, you know, this made us anxious. In, in the 80s, it would have been something else. In the 70s, it would have been something else. I think it comes back to just normalizing that anxiety has always been there in, in, a, in a way will always be there and, and that's okay. But our obsession with being anxiety free maybe is what's driving the, the idea that we're, we're increasing anxiety. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think um, that, that, that concept that you brought up at the, at the beginning, right? Like the, that, that idea of like we should somehow be anxiety free mm. is a trap. Right? Like it, it sounds like a good idea. Like, yeah, sure. Let's yeah. all be anxiety free. It's not attainable and striving to attain it ends up locking you into even more, um, into even more anxiety. So, you know, if, if, if we are living in a world where events that happen far away impact us much more than they would have in the past, because we see them online right away yeah. and we're like connected to them or our social group becomes all the people in my social media platform rather than just the actual human beings that I kind of see. Well, those are those may be factors that will contribute to anxiety and it just becomes so much more important to learn to be able to, you know, strengthen mm. that anxiety muscle, to be able to be anxious some of the some of the time. Yeah, I think I like I, I sometimes use even in my work the words anxiety free more for anxiety freedom from you know from being out of context Can, you know where you're continually mm. worrying all the time panic attacks on a regular basis I think sometimes I think that can maybe be helpful but I do agree that anxiety is a natural part of our lives and I heard a lovely quote today um, I'd love to say I remember the name of the person who's quote who said it but it was from a book called the power of moments is chip someone uh, just talking about that um, the more that the more basically we make our lives certain, the more uncomfortable, mm. um, the more um, yeah, the more we begin to feel quite uh, anxious and, and stressed, and sort of it, life just begins to feel drained yeah. of color. Whereas the more uncertain mm. life is, um, we have a very different experience. We feel very much alive, and I love the whole concept mm. of the, our obsession with being comfortable, our obsession with. Uh, being anxiety free um, that we shouldn't have it mm. is what could be driving us to over focus on our lives and make our lives quite dull in lots of ways and drive you know mm. you know the obsession That's with uh, is not to be not to be um to be certain with everything and to to focus back on uncertainty is beautiful you know uncertainty mm. anxiety means you're taking risks I mean, I talk to people about loving imposter syndrome because that means you're doing something outside your comfort zone. So that's a wonderful experience. So well done. And they're like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Um, but yeah, mm. I, I like the idea of just changing our relationships with anxiety to see it as such a big positive and upgrade, if you like, and not to see it as something that is um, debilitating or, or too much of a threat. Precisely. Yeah, that's a great uh, quote, and I, I think the uncertainty point is is a really deep one. I, I yeah. think that's it's so it's so true. The you know the the intolerance to uncertainty is it's another one of those traps, and 
you know, it, it really can, it really can ensnare you in, in just, um, just giving up on so many opportunities in, in life, right? Like there are, um, things that you'll forfeit that you'll give up on because you're not a hundred percent sure of how they're going to go. And you think about a child with anxiety and it's like, could I have fun on this uh, school trip? Maybe. Will I go? Definitely not. <laughs> Why not? Because like, what if this, right? Like, yeah, what yeah. if I throw up on the bus and everybody laughs at me or, you know, I don't know, some other really scary scenario that might go through your mind and increasing that tolerance to uncertainty. Mm. Uh, how did you say it? I think it can really kind of like bring some color back into, into your, into your life. Yeah. yeah that was really a nice, yeah, uh, a nice quote. It's so important to be in, in a way, not too, you know, ambivalent with it, but so what, you know, cause I was actually that kid who threw up on the coach when I was younger. Uh, I had <laughs> a, a travel phobia and I was made to go on a school trip and did that. Um, but what I learned mm. was that no one cared. <laughs> no one cared. Uh, despite my thoughts about it, no one was interested at all. And uh, there's a lot to be said for that. We often, the spotlight effect, isn't it? Where we think yeah, everyone's exactly, going to yeah. have disappointed. Hey, I can tell you, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, I can tell you, I um, was on a field trip as a kid and some, and some kid threw up. I don't remember who. <laughs> so, so I guess maybe... Not everybody is quite so focused on what you're, you know, yeah, yeah. what you're doing as you might, um, as you might think. But I, I think though that it is important though to, as we're promoting as like as a parent or in this conversation, like as we're promoting the idea of tolerance to anxiety, tolerance mm -hmm. to uncertainty, I do think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that it is really hard, yeah. right? Like, you, you know, you don't. You can't just say to an anxious child, oh, like, you know, don't worry about it. You know, like, uh, let your life be enriched by uncertainty and expect them to feel like that is fine because it really goes against what you're feeling. It's like you're swimming really upstream and it is an important message and we do want to communicate it. But don't expect a child who is struggling with anxiety to just buy into that right away. The more anxious you are the more you tend to experience a heightened need to be in control, right? Like to keep things on track, mm -hmm. to make sure things are going a certain way. And I think, you know, in addition to communicating these messages, I think you have to have a lot of empathy for the fact that what you're asking for feels very counterintuitive to an anxious, mm -hmm. uh, to an anxious person, whether they're an adult or a, a child. You know, when you're... When you're on vacation, uh, it's fun to like lo lo lose control a little bit, right? Like you can lose track of time, lose yourself in the streets of some uh, town that you're visiting. That's like relinquishing control over your life. But why do you do it? Because you know everything doesn't matter. You know everything is fine, right? You know, like you can catch an Uber back to your hotel in the end and it doesn't really matter. But you know, have a little bit of empathy for the anxious child who doesn't feel like they're on vacation. I would say, you know, I don't know, if you're on the way to the most important job interview of your life, nobody wants to get lost <laughs> on that <laughs> yeah. on that trip, right? Like that doesn't sound like fun at all. And when you're really mm -hmm. anxious, you can feel more like you're on the road to the interview and less like you're on vacation. So I think we also do have to have a lot of empathy for the fact that 
it's a really hard thing and it takes time to really internalize that message. I think just something that just popped up just then was, I don't know if you follow Dr. Andrew Huberman's work um, and he just recently mm-hmm. did an episode on a journal protocol and he'd make a big, mm. big emphasis on the importance of telling the truth and how even no matter how irrational or, you know, what, you know, crazy thoughts you might be having inside your mind that seem, you know, that they, they can't be real, but you believe them. I think just to, it, just to be in a place where you mm. can actually feel safe and vocalize that or write it down seems to create some form mm. of change in the brain. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating that if we get a child to suppress how they feel just by guys shushing them and telling them it's all okay and they don't get to express their mm-hmm. thoughts and feelings regardless of what the content is um i think that suppression might be uh, problematic whereas getting them to tell the truth regardless of what it is that might create the next stages for them to begin to think about it a bit differently yeah that's a good point and when they are you know, when they're able to vocalize it for themselves privately in a journal, I think that's a really good step. When they're, if they're sharing those thoughts with you as the parent, mm. then I think it's also really important, again, that your reactions show them that you don't think this is like a terrible thing to have going through your, your mind, right? Like sometimes mm. our, you know, sometimes our discomfort at the thoughts that a child might have can end up like, kind of dramatizing those thoughts a little bit more, right? Like, I don't know, maybe a child has thoughts about death, for example. And let's face it, for you as a parent, thoughts about your child's death are really horrifying. And the fact that they're thinking about it can be really shattering to you and really distressing to you. And, you know, you may react in a way that actually reinforces that suppressing message, right? Like, oh, wow well, let's not go there, right? Like, let's not say that. But if you're able to actually hear it and accept that, yeah, we all have like really scary thoughts that go through our mind and um, that's okay, then I think it will be Mm. a lot easier for them to give themselves permission to like have the thought as well. I think that's really important, especially with intrusive thoughts. I think that would be really, really helpful. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Dr. Eli, uh, Eli uh, Leibowitz, it's been amazing having you here today. Thank you so much. I know my community will be very grateful uh, for our conversation. Where can people find out more about you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Really enjoyed the um, the, the conversation. Um, I think if people want to learn more about the approach to child anxiety that I've been talking about, there's actually a name for it because I've been talking about it as a, um, you know, here are some ideas for parents, but there's actually a full therapy that parents can do to um, really go step by step in helping their child to overcome these problems. The therapy is called SPACE which stands for Supportive Parenting for Anxious Childhood Emotions. And the place to learn more about it is online is spacetreatment.net. So if you go to spacetreatment.net, you will find a lot of resources, including a list of therapists who are trained in this approach and might be able to work with you if um, if you're a parent. There's a book that parents can read that actually walks them through everything we've been talking about and more. Uh, in detail. It's called Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD. 
Um, you can find that on the website um, as well. And so I would start from the website. From there, you can get to like a Facebook page and find resources. There's articles. So start from the website is probably the best, uh, best portal into this. I will put all those links in the show notes uh, so people can just scroll down, click away, and uh, and, and grab your content and uh, explore uh, the website. I just want to say, again, thank you so much uh, for coming on to the show. Um, and if anyone has any questions for me or for you, um, please send them our way, and uh, hopefully we'll get them answered. Um, and I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this episode with me and Dr. Elu Libowitz. Um, I will get there. I'm terrible with surnames sometimes. Um, thank you so much uh, for listening. And I look forward to connecting with you in the very next episode. Mm-hmm.